Oh, Francis uh, Ford Coppola hates Marvel movies too. That motherfucker made Godfather 3 because he was in crippling debt. He does not get a leg to stand on. Welcome back to EnterTheRealWorld.com. This is the Will Be Movies, Volume 1, 2000-2009. This is 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. If you'd like to know the rules, the caveats, and everything of how we made this list, do listen to Episode 0, where you can find all of that. That is on the website that is pinned to the top of the Twitter profile. That is at the top of the playlist on SoundCloud. Go find it. Anyway, the we in and, and the our in our favourite movies uh is is myself matt waters and ben ben phillips who i didn't ask if he was ready to record when i said i am ready ben how are you i'm good i swallowed my drink i'm i'm here i'm ready nice cool i haven't had a second biscuit episode 18 is no country for old men now this is chosen by you and i'm sort of sad we kind of had a bit of a debate already earlier via text because this probably would have been quite entertaining to do live but i don't love the cohen brothers and i don't adore this movie i think it lives and dies by heavier by them just not my thing i don't i don't hate it and i see why people like it it's just it's just not very much for me but you very much do love all of it and although didn't you say this isn't your favorite coen brothers movie oh god it's either this or it's fargo fargo would be my favorite and i think noah hawley did fargo better than the coens did personally. well that's a wrong opinion well but i love i love a lot of coen brothers i was just randomly watching clips from the end of burn after reading the other day which is an incredible movie and i feel like the people i saw it with when i was god how old was 16 years old did not appreciate just how hilarious the final scene of that movie is they are two of my favourite working filmmakers. I didn't love Buster Scruggs, but like they, they've done so many movies that I adore that I can't really like besmirch them like one of one or two kind of missteps. Well, speaking of the many movies, uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen, this decade, 2000-2009, released Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, Burn After Reading, and A Serious Man, I believe. The o- only one that is my logical choice, and there's a, but there's only two that like I wouldn't have entertained at all as like movies we should cover i've seen most of the lady killers it's not good oh brother out though i don't love personally and i've never seen a serious man and and people say it's like the greatest a serious man is a serious man is excellent a serious man is really good i just don't like them very much if if you if you dislike the ending to this movie i feel like a serious man would piss you off even more because it stops on a shot of a tornado i don't like a lot of their endings to be honest i quite like true grit that's a remake, though, so... I mean, I don't know if that makes it less Cohen. I mean, it, it, I mean, an awful lot of their movies are, like, based on books. Yeah. Uh, or, well, they claim or this is their films. first one, even though... They, they, did, they did The Lady Killers. Yeah, and, and, like, Miller's Crossing is, like, two books, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> you know, come on. Yeah, I, they're just... They're very much not for me. I also don't think Cormac McCarthy is for me, and uh, this is obviously an adaptation of his book of the same name. So so what's your experience? Because I, the, the, we're not going to discuss Cormac McCarthy a lot, but how many Cormac McCarthy's have you read? Is it just The Road? Uh, yeah, The Road is the you only one I've read in full. Yeah, I, I've um, seen excerpts here and there of his other works, and, you know, knowing what I do vaguely about him, uh, I not for me. Yeah, so The Road was... I don't, I'm not going to say I fell out of reading, but, like, very much 
when I was like a teenager, I didn't read as much as I did when I was kind of like preteen. And then one one kind of like end of the school year, I got Hammers Tell the Road and The Stand by Stephen King because I was going through like a real edgy, yeah, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> edgy apocalyptic phase. And all three of those books are like three of my favorite books of all time. I adore The Road. I immediately went out and I'd already seen No Country for Old Men at this point. I went out immediately and bought two books that I'd been massively acclaimed by him. I bought No Country just to read it, which I still have it sat on the shelf. I've not actually read the book of this oh. movie. Oh, that kills my next question. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, um, and then I also bought Blood and Meridian, which then killed my ability to read books for a good four years. Oh, good. Um, I picked it up like immediately after I finished university, started to read it, and I did not finish it until I forced myself about a year and a half ago to, to finally finish that book. And I am not a fan. It's yeah, it's one of those things where like I thought like just going to a different book where him I'd find what I needed but Blood Meridian was very much not mm. what I wanted and it's kind of more of a pure western okay. than, than this is I mean it, it's still very much kind of like fighting against fighting against western tropes whereas this is very much more we're going to take archetypes and do a neo-western I think is what people kind of like refer to this as yes the wanky language yes, yes. I've read some you know like summaries of how the book differs from the movie or the movie differs from the book would be the more accurate way to phrase it's, that it, I've, I've, heard it, I've heard it's not very much it's more kind of like Coen Brothers typing losing a lot and... of dialogue Ed Tom narrates every chapter that kind of thing I, I don't know just some of the stuff that they took out I'm like maybe I would have liked it more if they kept that in but most people also say that the film is better than the book so I think it's one of those things where, like, I think Ed Tom narrating it would probably drive home probably your core disappointment with the movie. Yeah. Just from what I've heard of, like, what those <laughs> sequences are. But it's also like I mm. I can't imagine this movie with every scene opening with kind of like oh, no, yeah, two yeah. minute like speech from Tommy Lee Jones. No, just yeah, kind yeah. of like people's point. Like this is the actual protagonist that you yeah. need to be paying attention. Well, to. yeah, you can't you can't do that. But yeah, that that's my bigger thing. You know, you open with that amazing monologue that. Tommy Lee Jones crushes, obviously. But then it's like, to pretend at the end that this guy was the main character, it's like, sorry, no. The main characters were, were Llewellyn and, and Anton Chigurh. Like, their expectation that I give a fuck about Ed Tom <laughs> is, is a bold one. And maybe having him as a more constantly present character in the book would, would make me latch on to him more. I don't know. Uh, we'll get into all of this momentarily but released november 2007 in the u.s january 2008 in the uk we have done box office we have done critically acclaimed stuff so why don't we do oscars as this movie won every last goddamn one of them it did win a lot of oscars <laughs> in a year where like they actually spread the love pretty well like it only okay it won four out of its eight but it's pretty universally held that like this was very much like the two most nominated movies that year were no control men and there will be blood which are probably two of the most acclaimed movies of the 2000 2009 period we're covering they are very much like the 1a 1b of kind of like 2007 and probably like <laughs> of that decade but no control men won both director and no, and best picture and it won best supporting actor and it won best adapted screenplay which i can't disagree with any of those choices really i do think it's best picture i think i do prefer it very much slightly to there will be blood what um, else was was nominated that year that year was no country atonement juno michael clayton and there will be blood oh michael clayton i uh... 
I, the thing is, ultimately, it comes down to like, do you prefer No Country or do you prefer The Wolf of Blood? And yes, there are movies that should have been nominated over this. Like Zodiac, one hundred percent should have been in that five. The fact it wasn't and didn't get nominated for anything is a travesty. Yeah, super bad. Um, obviously, Sunshine. Obviously. Yeah, but there's there's a hell of a lot of good movies here. I mean, like, so I'm just gonna run through the list of movies that won Oscars uh, in 2007. Bone Ultimatum won three awards. Yay! <laughs> in the era where you could do that before superhero movies started winning all the technical stuff. Olivia Rose, The Wolf Blood. Atonement, Counterfeiters, Elizabeth the Golden Age, Free Held, Golden Compass, Juno, Michael Clayton, Mozart Pink Pockets, Once, Peter and the Wolf, Ratatouille, Sweeney Todd, Taxi to the Dark Side. Someone told me Counterfeiters should have been on our list, and I, I haven't even heard of it, so I'm an like uncultured swine. So. I mean, Ratatouille also probably should have been on our list. But wow, yeah, well. There was a version of this list that had an awful lot of Disney stuff on it, and there is, we there made is. a choice, so... Uh, and um, whilst, whilst we're doing Oscars, we're going to discuss probably the greatest tra- travesty, which is that uh, Roger Deakins got two nominations and didn't win either of them for cinematography this year. Aww. Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford as well this year. Uh, okay. Which are two, like, incredibly gorgeous movies. But then I also can't be mad that Robert Ellswick won for The Wee Blood, <laughs> because that is also a gorgeous movie. I'm super looking forward to watching it in a couple of weeks. It could be a rough time for Matt's opinions about critical, uh, you know, critical darlings. If I don't get on with this, or there will uh, there will be blood. Anyway, uh, this is 122 minutes long, uh, which isn't overly long. I believe at the time it was the longest Coen Brothers movie. I don't know if that is still true, but I, I don't know. We'll get into it when we do it. But I, I feel like in that two hours, more could have been achieved. 25, 25 million dollar budget, 172 million dollar gross. So big, big hit. Yeah, there's there's not a whole lot of sexy stuff about how it came together because obviously they just adapted this book. And, and there you go. But the thing is, they're, they're quite private people. They don't do like a hell of a lot of interviews, and they just kind of like, especially at this point, we're making a movie like once every two years. So there's no like Fincher, like he worked for three years on the screenplay trying to find new clues about who the Zodiac killer was. It's just like they bought mm-hmm. a book, made a movie. We agree that David Fincher is the Zodiac killer. However, there is plenty of juicy stuff about who was going to play what and stuff like that. So the character of Llewellyn Moss was originally to be played by Heath Ledger, but he had just had a baby daughter and he was like I'm not going to do any movies because I would like to spend time with my daughter and having seen his performance in Brokeback Mountain I think he would have been real good at this but Josh Brolin is also real good at this so yeah like he he would have killed it I think it probably I think the reason he probably did turn it down was probably because it was too similar to he doesn't want to just be like the western guy I mean although Brolin comes back and he's in True Grit right like is he in True Grit he's in like yeah right fair two scenes that's a fair comment. Javier Bardem almost dropped out. Mark Strong was on standby to to play Antoine. Uh, I mean, I mean, he would have played two of the greatest villains of two thousand seven if yeah. he had if yeah. he had done that. Pinbacker. Uh, imagine if they had the same visual effects on Antoine Chigurh. What a movie that would have been. When he was offered the role, Bardem said, "I can't drive. I don't speak good English, and I hate violence." And they were like, "That's why we want you." And it's like, <laughs> okay. And he also, when he saw the haircut they wanted him to have, he said he wasn't going to get laid for two months, which I think is a great response because like I'm still going to get laid just not for two months because <laughs> I'm heavier by them. Tommy Lee Jones ended up making 15 extra million dollars because of some sort of weird admin error with his contract and they were like shit 
we owe him more money now. That's fun. They had to halt filming for a day because PTA was testing pyrotechnics nearby for There Will Be Blood, and there was just this huge plume of smoke coming up over the horizon, and they're like, well, we can't film here today. But I love that these movies were shooting so close together and were also released by the same company. <laughs> yup. The Iron Man Factory. And this one blew my fucking mind. Maybe everyone knows this, but I certainly didn't. Woody Harrelson's dad is a fucking hitman who was sentenced to life in prison for murdering a judge in 1979 and in the book Tom says how oh, people killed a federal judge last year or something and it's like did Woody Harrelson get cast in a movie that loosely has something about his <laughs> murderous father in it like I didn't know that shit that he's the son of a murderer man anyway I'll try and look at him the same way going forward let's do it Texas 1980 Ed Tom Bell narrates over some like lovely shots of Texas landscapes and you know he's talking about how the old timers used to not even use guns or carry guns and can't help but compare yourself and things have changed man and he no longer understands what he's facing and like you know this is it's great like Tommy Lee Jones seems like a bit of an asshole in real life but like he's a very good actor and I think occasionally people forget that and he just absolutely nails this entire opening monologue and like the whole thing about the guy that was sentenced to death and saying yeah I've always wanted to kill someone and I'd do it again if you let me go so bye yeah like all, all the press say it's a crime of passion but like I spoke to the guy and he's just like I just wanted to kill someone like there was nothing more to it than that right so this this opening monologue I think this and the, the first scene we see with characters the, you know the next scene where like you know Anton Chigurh is arrested by a small town policeman who he promptly murders and, and drives off and then murders a stranger it just always made me think this movie was going to be dramatically different than it is like I was like oh he's like a serial killer and he just murders people for the joy of it and it's like no he's he's this like assassin for hire who's like embroiled in drug deals and stuff and like I was just like that doesn't seem to fit how you've written this character and like Tommy Lee, you know, Ed Tom like talking about there's like a new brand of killer out there but like ultimately the plot of this movie it's just like yeah criminals are just doing wild shit and have no fear of the law anymore and it's like I don't think it jives in my head with what they're going for or, or how it seems like they're setting this up. I just, I, I personally think this would have been a better movie if he was a serial killer who was just like wandering around murdering people. And like it's even like in the book, he's like, he makes off with the money and he had like this secret guy he was working for all along or something. It's like that doesn't seem to fit with the way you're kind of visually coding him. And I just, it always weirded me out the first time I saw it that it's like he, he's just some guy that you can just hire to do criminal shit. Yes. I disagree just because I think this perfectly sets up kind of like what he means to the movie that he is this kind of like ever-present specter of death it just follows him and it so perfectly kind of sets up this theme of violence and this kind of like random violence that kind of like follows in his wake that kind of like exists throughout the entire movie the movie kind of like starts to veer away from like actually needing to show the violence as it goes through yeah and like I understand where you're coming from I think the issue is is that we're not introduced to him in a way where we understand why he's doing what he's doing because he seems so completely in control for the rest of the movie that like when his first scene is him being arrested it kind of like puts you on the back foot it's not like like he was at the Mexican standoff in Texas and like this was just them p- him picking him up this is like just some random cop picks him up because he's like wandering the side of the road and he wanted a car <laughs> yeah I guess like, like, we see it, that he kills for cars like yeah that's the thing is like I think I think most of the killings he does in this movie are to get someone's car <laughs> yeah. um, first scene with him like the, the, the sheriff or the deputy or whatever it is yeah um, is sat on 
the phone saying like oh he had this weird device with him oh. and then in the background he like just steps over the handcuffs and then comes up and then chokes him to death and because it's this kind of like realistic thermal violence like the like the way he's pulling the handcuffs into his neck causes a, him to pop an artery yeah and like his wrists are all fucked up and the scuff marks on the floor yeah it, and it takes like an uncomfortably long time as well because that is how that works you can't just choke someone to death in 20 seconds um, yeah and yeah. then and then and, and like we, his we... crazed eyes as well like, he... he's, he's so good and that first scene where you like see his face up close and it's like have they put white makeup on him as well I don't I don't know because he's like dangerously pale he's got a big fucking face I'll tell you that yeah but then we follow up with him like stealing the cop car driving behind this guy telling him to get out the car and then he just says like, oh just stand still and then puts the bolt gun yeah. or bolt pistol whatever it is to like to this guy's forehead and then just like kills him in the way that we kill cows it's so unemotionless and so perfectly sets it up and and Javier Bardem is such a presence in this movie yeah this is, this is what I'm saying like, I don't like hate this whole movie like, I'm super into well that sounds bad I'm super into the stuff where he's just murdering people no yeah I'm really into Bardem's performance I quite like Josh Brolin's and like if the whole movie was this kind of stuff I'd be like yeah fuck yeah this movie I just don't like where it ends up going and it's not about like the violence de-escalating which it does and I think it is a nice touch that we go from like these really graphic displays and then as we go on it's more implied yeah like, like w- w- once you reach the kind of halfway point in the movie like you could conceivably see a world in which this is not a 15 anymore <laughs> yeah. but like, it so thoroughly earns everything yeah. and I think and I think the kind of like the the on the back foot nature of these opening scenes with Sugar is so very important to kind of like the way that we treat him for the rest of the movie where he just has conversations with people and like you could literally go like I don't know how this conversation's ending and obviously like some of the tension is kind of like dissipated on repeated viewings like we know that the guy at the gas ta- at the gas station is going to walk away but that still doesn't stop like the entire conversation being like this guy just being terrified about like, like I know it's actually a couple of scenes after him killing that guy at the beginning but I think it does make sense to just truck these two together because it just tells you who he is like the whole what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss and like you know knowing you know we know what he's wagering here and the man seems to gradually catch on well maybe he doesn't even perceive it because well, the thing it, is because he's asking so many weird questions it's like what time do you close and then he's like uh, well, uh I, like, I like that about him that he like quibbles with people over language and like social norms yeah that's now is not a time yeah what well, time do you close what time do you close oh now now's not a time when do you close and just sort of just picking him up on all of the stuff he says and, and like just really like focusing in on that it's that thing where like so much of society is run on us kind of putting up with each other's bullshit for an easier time and when you see characters like this who are like no I'm going to like press you on this issue it is really uncomfortable to see and like this guy like and like in the book I believe this scene takes place like it is almost dark outside and they chose to like make it like right in the middle of the day because like, oh yeah we um we close when it's getting dark and you can see it's fucking like bright as shit out there but they also like like i think the difference in dialogue is like two words yeah. like i think it's like what's the most you've ever seen lost in a coin toss and they change it to be about this guy and it immediately makes the scene a billion times more tense because like we have seen him just do these two horrific murders yeah. and as the audience we're kind of going like is he going to do this third one and then and he flips I- the coin and and his reaction to like the guy going to put it in his pocket after put he's it wherever heads. you want just not in your pocket <laughs> yeah. and it becomes another coin which it is yes I like him saying like you know this coin has been travelling for 22 years to get here and, and he's big into fate 
and destiny and, and, and chance as well. Like Fate and chance seem to be at odds, but I think they don't have to be, and I think the Coens are very into that as a general theme. Like, yeah, I, I saw someone say, like, oh, he's just a gambling addict. I'm like, that's not the no, point yeah, of Shigeru yeah, yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. And I think a lot of movies, the temptation would have been to have him kill someone the first time he offers the coin toss to, like, establish what he's doing here. And obviously we do see him offer a coin toss again later in the movie, but, like, there's no need, like, you get it. You There's no need to establish this. We know 100% what is going down here. Well, I mean, I think that's two of my favourite things about this movie. And, like, one of them is Javier Bardem has, in this character, created probably, like, the only modern classic villain. I don't think there's another villain from, like, the 2000s who can touch this performance. Kylo, but, Kylo Ren, obviously. Oh, wait, no, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm completely misspeaking. Like, there, there, there are, like, the two great villain performances of the 2000s. It's this, and it's Heath Ledger as the Joker. Yeah. There's not really anything else that kind of, like, touches it or became quite as, like, established in cinematic lexicon that, like... Yes, okay, that one. Because I think... There's another podcast on the site where we talk about fucking Batman villains, but, uh, yeah, I think Liam Neeson is also very good, but obviously Heath Ledger took on a fucking life, and this took on a life. Like, this is... This scene of, you know, what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss, this is, like, the clip they pull up when they're saying why this movie is good. And Yeah, like, this, this is the scene that will be played at, like, in Harry Mubadem's memoriam when he dies. Yeah, he um, will never like, die. He's too sexy to die. Um, <laughs> but like, that thing is like, he's he's a fantastic actor. He's played a Bond villain, and yet he will never escape this role. I yeah. feel. Yeah, 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 yeah. For his entire career, no matter how many great and amazing movies he does. I know, I, I had to point out uh, when watching it, like, he is, like, generally known for being, like, a heartthrob <laughs> in mm. Spanish language movies. And here he is being brave and how not attractive he looks and, and, like, just playing this complete psychopath. I do think his accent kind of comes out in places in the in the coin toss scene. Like, you can hear some of the Spanish in his voice. But I think, but... I think that kind of, like, really works with the character as well. Yeah, and, like, the voice is very hypnotic. Like, it. It's, it's low, but not in a typically low way. I don't know. He's just got this unsettling timber to his voice as well. Um, um, but yeah, the, the other thing I love about this is it's kind of like the first stage of the movie doesn't hold your hand in terms of like interpreting its language. We've had two deaths. Now we're into this third one. Yep. We understand what's at stake with this character now. The movie doesn't have to do a scene where, like, it closes up on him and he's got the, the canister with him and we know he's going to, like, maybe put up to his head or whatever it is. Yeah. And and it works so often with every character in this movie, but, but particularly Shigur, where every single character he meets until we get to the point when in, like, one of the final scenes when it's very heavily signaled that he has just murdered someone, mm. but we've cut away and you don't see anything of that scene of violence. It's all up to the audience kind of, like, having to... Mm. have picked up on the cinematic language that the Coen brothers have, like, laid into this. And it's why I think, like, this is the Coens at their strongest, is mm. that, like, they, they are supremely incredible technical directors, and this is them just flexing every single muscle in their repertoire. Well, speaking of which, we get to see Llewella Moss, played by Josh Brolin. He is out hunting, and we have all these fucking gorgeous long shots of Texas landscapes again and as one when he goes back is the one I really like but yeah he while out he just happens across this drug deal that went very south a lot of dead people and you know he tracks the path of the last man standing and finds him under a tree with a briefcase containing two million dollars I like how deliberately slow the hunting scene is uh, and and we gotta linger on these long shots because they're real fucking pretty and you're gonna like it and I 
I like. I, I like. Mean, I think it's like this early stretch of the movie is so thoroughly quiet. There's no dialogue. The whole it's so thing economic is in its year. pretty quiet. Like, there's no. I mean, I mean, what, what Woody Harrelson shows up and like he's quite talky. But yeah, the movie yeah, yeah. like puts a lampshade on that and stuff well, like that. Like, there's more dialogue from certain sects of characters. Yeah, I just um, mean like you know, there's like 16 minutes of music on the score. That's insane. For the most part, they are not afraid of silence and they use it. And it's a lot of just sound effects and a lot of not talking and a lot of not music. I like him, you know, methodically finding the money by being like, you know, if you stopped, you'd be in the shade. And then like stopping at a good distance away from these two trees and like checking his watch and checking the sun and everything. And like, I like that particularly the three main characters are very clever and they don't it's not a gimmicky kind of clever either they're just quietly clever and they just figure shit out and they guess each other's plans and stuff it's yeah but then stuff. but then he's also a complete idiot because his first move is i'm gonna take this two million dollars it's not he see he sees the dog blood decides to go investigate where it came from rather than go find the deer that he shot and because he wants to take this money because he thinks there's no recompense for it yeah. he basically sets off the entire rents of the rest of the movie well my counter argument is coming in a second but yeah again they're trucking in like random chance and consequence and like you know he took this money and and he just happened to stumble across it he's not like he wasn't part of the drug deal he's not a cop who's like corrupt like he's just some guy who and you don't even know what his profession is until like midway through or whatever or and he's retired anyway or he says he is but and he, he like hides the guns he takes all the guns as well he like hides them underneath the trailer and and like he finds a survivor who's asking him for water and he's like i don't have any water and just leaves him there and then in the middle of the night he's like okay and he like fills up some water and, and like takes it back to him and for him to just leave in the middle of the night not giving a firm answer about where he's going to his wife and when he gets back and, and like she's like I'm not hearing a sorry and he doesn't apologise even after that it's like you're kind of a dick Llewellyn I'm sorry I love that scene of the, the dialogue of him leaving where he's just like tell mother I love her your mother's dead well then I'll tell her myself <laughs> yeah it's, it's oh god it's just I, I love so much of this dialogue I love Love this performance. Yep. Um, Kelly McDonald is like not given a lot to do, but I still think that she gets she does do a lot with her scenes that she's in like their scene where they're flirting on the couch where she's just like like taking the piss out of him and then he just takes a sip from his beer and says like if you don't shut your mouth I'm gonna like take you into the room and screw you and she's kind of like smiling contemplating going like I might just do that <laughs> I might carry on and it's just like it's it's a nice relationship even with it having kind of that edge to it from being kind of red statey yes <laughs> again really down with this first like hour and change so this is my counterpoint to like what you're saying about like him being stupid and taking the money and it's setting off all the events what sets the events off is he goes back with water with a conscience to try and like give this dying man some water and like obviously this guy was going to be dead when he got back like i don't know how many hours it's supposed to have been but it's it wasn't quick and this guy's clearly going to die but he goes back with the water with his car which they then like that's how everyone ends up tracing it back to him if he'd just taken that money i think he probably would have gotten away with it. i mean maybe Sugar tracks him because of the transponder or what or whatever that's that's in the case. But I mean, that's the thing is because he wouldn't have thought to run. Like they, they, he would have had no thought to run, and they would have probably driven to the town. Potentially, but he was. I think he was safer than he would have been if he hadn't 
gone back because he gets shot very early on and Brolin fucked up his shoulder in a motorbike accident before they started filming and he was like shit I've lost the part and then they were like oh you get shot in the shoulder in like one of the early scenes in the movie so you can just have a fucked up shoulder and that'll probably be good for the performance yeah you know like he he is working very injured throughout the the shot I really like you know when he's like looking around and you just see this horizon and it's quiet and it's dark and then he looks back and now there's a second truck and there's two people and they don't zoom in and make a big thing of it it's just like oh shit there's that like quiet terror of, yeah. of just someone is there now I mean um, I mean Roger Deakins is probably like the best cinematographer working in movies I mean that, that whole sequence is stunning because it's all like backlit from that light from the moon and you just see the silhouette of the car and then his car descends just a little bit and you can tell that they've cut his tires and then they come down and just that entire like here's the chase sequence where like this like the almost strobe effect of like you seeing him running mm-hmm. and oh god this, this entire movie looks I don't like buy that he could outrun a fucking truck but whatever uh, I, I know it's all terrain like, uneven and, terrain and I know but even so and him like getting in the water and then the dog fucking giving chase and him having to get out of the water and try and dry out his gun and, and load it as calmly as he possibly can as a dog is like running and you know pulling the trigger just as it's in midair like you know not a fan of dog deaths in movies but like that's an intense scene and yeah like, again this is this is them working at the height of their powers and everyone is kind of like clicking this entire segment I, I mean my, the entire movie brings me joy he gets home and tells Carla Jean go to your mother's anything you don't take with you you're never gonna see again again like without any hint of an apology like off you go and we see two men take Anton Chigurh out to this this drug deal scene and at first he's like giving his ass- his assessment and like he takes the the registration off the inside of the car and then but then he he kills them both and takes their little receiver and uh he he finds Loyland's trailer breaks in obviously he's gone but sits down has a glass of milk and and he like reads their phone bill and it's like, yeah, you're fucked, because this says it's got, like, the number for her mother's place, and I think it's also got the the motel that he ends up staying at for some reason down there as well. Maybe it's, like, a number in that town, so he goes to that town just in case... I mean, yeah, it's one of those things where, like, the movie doesn't highlight this, it's just, here's some information that you can use to figure out, like, what what's happening he like tries to interrogate that because it's like I guess it's like a, a trailer park and, and there's like a clerk for the for the trailer park and he's like where does he work where does he work where does he work <laughs> and she like won't tell him and then just like the sound of another person being there is enough to make him go away and I'm like hmm okay I feel based on some of his interactions like he maybe would have kept pressing this but he gives up and this is where I remember distinctly for the, the first time I saw it being like wait what why are these two guys able to like just take him out here how did they find him like why is he involved in this I assumed he was a serial killer and then no he's just some dude for hire he's like the best assassin I guess, yeah. Or like Hitman or whatever it is. And I mean, I'm, I'm not sure who these guys work for, whether or not they're the same. They never make any Steve... of that clear. Like, they don't even name Stephen Root's character. <laughs> Man who hires wealth. Ed Tom, the sheriff, he and... I don't know if he's his deputy or just another policeman, but um, they are able to track from the the station where Chigo murdered that cop at the beginning. They find the bystander's car and then they go from there to this, this drug deal scene and they also head to Llewellyn's trailer and find nothing and they've missed Anton by a few minutes. I really like that they're not idiots here. Like, they they go out of their way to tell you that Tommy Lee Jones 
is smarter than um, Garrett Dillahunt. Yes, because he's just that little bit further ahead of him. But they like accurately figure out the exact scenario of like, oh, I think we had two incidents here. Like this was Wild West and this was an execution. And yeah, I, I think that's a nice touch to just not have it be like, here's two smart people and everyone else is dumb as fuck. And, and deliberately like having Tommy Lee Jones sit in the exact spot that Bardem was sitting and drinking the milk and looking in the reflection and 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 that kind of thing. Like there are a lot of these theories about how these two characters are like have so much in common and it's like I don't think that's actually true if you look at the personality types but they do go out of their way to frame this exact shot the same way any at least. Uh I think this entire like again it sets up this kind of like third narrative that doesn't really intersect with the other two. Like it really nope. is very much the kind of like sugar moss story and then a Tom Bell kind of like following the wake of all this chaos which probably would have been reinforced more if there had been some more dialogue or some voiceover kind of like him kind of interpreting kind of like running across these moments of violence and instead all we're left is the kind of repeated refrain where the DEA agent wants to take Ed Tom Bell out to like the various crime scenes and he's just like I've seen him once don't need to see him again they've they've affected me in this way that doesn't make me comfortable and I'm not going to put myself through that again but I also I really love Garrett Dillahunt he's one of my kind of like favourite TV character actors um, and I'm annoyed that he keeps on doing TV shows that I don't want to watch <laughs> um, because like between this and uh, he plays the original villainous Terminator on Terminator Sarah Connor, Sarah Connor Chronicles which he's really good in but he's also like a really good comedian from Raising Hope he's one of the big bads at the end of Justified but yeah for, like the last couple of years he did like the horrible Amazon series with, with Ron Perlman uh, and now he's on Fear the Walking Dead I'm like I don't care <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not watching these things even though I love him as an actor he's like I think he appeared as like three different actors in Deadwood and then oh, and also he was fantastic in Willows last year Oh, uh, same Willows? Yeah, he's the kind of like the, the hired help that they've got the, the kind of big bruiser he used to be a football player okay. that they break into the house and like kill him uh, Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Good actor playing kind of more to his comedic strengths in this than his dramatic strengths <laughs> He reminds me of in Fargo when Margie goes to the crime scene at the beginning and like he gives his assessment and she's like I don't know about your police work there <laughs> except, except he's completely he, correct yeah, he's correct though. Yeah, I think that's that's like the main difference here. Is I'm expecting Ed Tom is the only intelligent cop, and all of the rest of them are idiots. And I'm not saying like we need more positive portrayals of cops by any means. Uh, but you know, a lot of movies would have everyone here be dumb except for this one mystical special cop and this magical criminal and everything. So Llewellyn goes on the run. Uh, he checks into a motel, stashes most of the cash in an air vent, and I like that he tucks it slightly around the corner and that will of course be important to what ends up happening but just not like right there by by the vent like you could potentially glance in and miss it but when he so he goes out and gets a bunch of supplies with the money that he took out of the case and then when he comes home he notices somebody is parked outside his room I no think... he notices the window the curtains parked a little bit okay but there is also a truck parked outside I think there is a truck but the reason he oh, okay. tells the tax driver to drive is because he sees that the, the curtains are parked a little bit and he cut, made a point to like close the curtains completely Yes. And when he left. And he's like checking. Yeah, yeah. And so he like goes to stay somewhere else. And then he comes back and he gets the room behind it. He sees the map of the, of the motel. And, and she's like, oh, you can have the one next to it if you want. He's like, no, no, no. So he obviously wants the one that shares a wall with it from behind or whatever. And he does 
managed to reacquire the money. So I, I really like him fashioning this device from like tent poles and coat hangers and stuff, like this long like grabbing device. And I like him getting the tent poles in the first place. He's like, tent poles, but he's like, oh, have you already got a tent and you just need poles? He's like, yep, something like that. He's like, well, I can order them in. He's like, never mind, I want a tent. And it's like, how dumb is this guy? But okay, you know, seeing him buying guns and how easy that shit is, is never not going to be scary. Uh, as someone who doesn't live in a country where guns are so readily available. I love that this is all intercut with Shigur kind of like, he's dro- driving over here, he picks up the transponder beeps. Um, Was this literally and- his plan, just drive around? Because, I mean, you know, you see, so there's Odessa, there's El Paso, it's Del Rio, isn't it? Or something like that. This one's El Paso. Uh, oh, no, they... El Paso actually, is where they go to meet later. Yeah, no, this is this is Del Rio. Yeah, Del Rio, yeah, yeah. So was he just going to drive around Del Rio listening to the fucking... Transport? I assume so, I assume yeah, so. Just drive up and down the fucking highways. I mean, like, I mean, last thing is, he's just, like, a, a systemic kind of, like, killing machine. Like, he's going to yeah. do what he can to kind of, like, figure this out. And the beauty, like, he gets to the point, he sees the motel, he pulls off, yeah. drives past the room, the beep stop, he reverses back, he books a different motel room, we see him doing it in the same way that, that Luennan did earlier. I like that he, like, investigates his own room to, like, get familiar with the layout kind of thing. Like, he's checking the cupboards, he's checking the all that stuff, and, like... Like, he purposely chooses a room which is, like, the same side as his would be. Yes, to make sure the layout's the same, so that he knows what he's walking into and everything, and, um... He goes check, like, the thickness of walls, and... Yeah, and he's also checking, like, he does that thing where he turns the lights off, and then he suddenly turns them on again, and, like, like he bursts in, I think, just to see if he can, like, quickly take it in, is how I, I guess I, I took yeah. that. Um, or if it, like, looks how it does in his head, I don't know, but, um... He fucking slaughters the three men who are in the well the, the first shot to the guy pick, going to pick up his Uzi, and it's, like, the most graphic violence in the movie, is he shoots him with the shotgun and his hand like falls off and is like tearing his arm apart yeah because he's got this like silenced shotgun which at the time was not possible but now is but yeah it's fucked up like like him him using like the bolt gun thing and this silent shotgun that sounds it's got this like hissing sound to it as well and i think he uses like a it's not quite a pistol but it's not quite an easy i don't know he uses like a slightly bigger gun uh later on for his sort of long range stuff they all have this sound it just it gives him this like i mean gimmick in a good way this time it's like a hook to this character is that he uses this like bizarre weaponry that's like not what you've come to expect and you know see him head over there in his socks so that they can't hear him coming and everything and just and we and we get the kind of start to the kind of like the shoe trend that he has (laughs) in this movie where i mean like so he kills the guy on the bed rips his arm off shoots a safety shot through the wall at the back of the room and then kills the guy from the bathroom and he covers him like he pulls the cat the curtain over him first because like you get this thing of like he doesn't like to get blood on himself where yeah. he, where he can avoid it yeah and we get like the blood spatter on the back of the the shower curtain after he does it yes and meanwhile, like, meanwhile Luenlin is like digging in the other room and can hear the gunshots and the screams and those that like and that's the first like great thing is like we know just how close they are like they're literally about like two feet apart from each other <laughs> at that point and like if he makes a little too much noise in that vent he's gonna give it away as well and that he has to sort of hear it and calmly goes about his business still it's like oof. you see like Shigeru like toss his socks off because they're covered in blood and on some level it's like what is he thinking here like maybe the guy dumped the trans Bonder in here and he's gone because he knows that it's there because he turns it on before he goes over doesn't he and like yeah but he just gets away and it's like okay well yeah but yeah it's it's incredibly tense and like the violence is 
abhorrent and it's crazy. Speaking of crazy, uh, Woody Harrelson shows up about an hour into this movie almost. Carson Wells, he is another, I don't know if he's a hitman, but you know, he's in the business. I mean, they, they refer to him as a retired army colonel later on in the movie. So I think it's just like one of those things where like that, that kind of cliche that after the army they, they go into wet work. Yes, and he calls himself a day trader, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. I guess it's and like, just I think, like... I think this is where it's kind of blurred, because obviously, I mean, oh, it's kind of like there are two sides. There are the people that have the money and the people who have the drugs, and the people who have the drugs have obviously paid multiple killers, hit, killer hitmen to kind of like go track down this money, but yeah. they've also like, a revelation later in the movie is they've also decided to work with the Mexicans to try and like recover the money as well. Yeah, and he says how like, you know, you choose one good instrument, not two bad ones or whatever. Stephen Root is great in everything he does, even when he's playing a character who has no name. They never really, like, iron out the particulars of who he is and, like, what's going on here, but you can kind of just sort of fill in those dots for yourself. And they establish Carson Wells as, like, like you said, he's, like, Malvia and, like, he's annoying. Like, asking if he can validate his parking and he counted the floors from the outside. One of my favourite non-sequiturs in this movie is, like, I counted the floors on the way in and it turns out you got a floor missing and then Stephen Root just says like we'll look into that <laughs> I mean, it's just it's such a beautiful thing that like it lays down this guy as being like completely methodical in probably like a, a slightly off-putting way in that like he counts things I think I think that's sort of the idea is that like he's got all this experience and he's just able to apply it to like civilian-ish situations or whatever I don't know but I assume it's that whole thing of like a lot of buildings don't include a 13th floor or, or... It, it, it probably is it probably is a reference to that but it's yeah. still quite this yeah nice. just, I, and he does it on purpose like you see it later when he meets Llewellyn like he, he deliberately rubs people the wrong way and uh, he also sort of gives us a little bit of it a little bit of exposition about Shigar here. He's like, you know, I last saw him November 28th or whatever it was um, of last year and, and sort of saying he's the best or, or I don't know, like he's very good at what he does. He's very good at what he does and there's this kind of like, you can tell they're in the same line of work and it probably was kind of like a professional setting but also we have seen that Shigar is very much like, he kills anyone who sees him pretty much. Yeah, so it's kind like, of this idea that he saw him but he didn't see him. That's <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, especially with his comment later. So Llewellyn checks into another hotel. Uh, he hitchhikes his way to this one. And he does discover the tracker in the in the money, but he does so too late. Well, that's the thing. I like the two revelations he has in the movie, where it's like, the first one is a moralistic one to like, should I go give water to this guy? And he is like, that's the thing. The movie fundamentally says like, this is a good guy, he made a bad decision. We still need to punish him for the bad decision. Is I think the kind of statement the movie kind of is making. But then in this one, it's just like, he sat there going like, I should not have been found by two groups of people. Quite as easily as I have been found, so clearly they are tracking me in some way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Again, showing he's he's very intelligent, if yeah. maybe kind of like rash in his decision-making processes. Yeah, and like him like offering the desk guy money to tell him if anyone checks in, and then seeing him sit there on the bed and like call down to the reception and you can like hear the phone ringing because it's so fucking quiet him getting no answer at all as we see you know we hear something outside the tension the sustained tension of this 
almost two minutes. It feels like as he's sitting. It's, on it's, the I think it's more. I think it's more. It's more than that. Like well, in terms of it in the hotel, yeah, it's probably only about two minutes. But like, yeah. I think this this the run of this movie from now up until Sugar gets away is probably my favorite filmmaking sequence of yeah. the two thousands. Oh, it's, it's fucking um, fantastic. Like, I I don't think I don't think there's anything like I remember watching this movie because um I didn't see it in cinemas. I wish I had, but I remember watching it at home on on DVD at the time and just kind of like hunched up in a little ball just kind of like no idea what was going on this scene is <laughs> is what i think of when i think of like moments in cinema that like give me chills yeah it's um, a, it's electric it's like doing a lot with nothing like it's it's quiet and you just see him sitting there and like knowing he's kind of fucked and pointing his gun at the door and like turning the light off so that i guess he can get a better he turns the light off so he can see the light exactly the doors. yeah and yeah. then and then sugar turns the light off in the hallway so that he can surprise him with the because we saw him earlier on like he he uses his his captive bolt gun or whatever they call it to kill people but he also we've seen uses it to blow out locks and you see that scene of it you know he shot Llewellyn's lock clean across the room to the point it like made a mark on the wall and you see Ed Tom like picking it up and looking at it and all that and he does this again and it like hits Llewellyn and that would fucking hurt obviously and then he opens fire back and then jumps out the window and i really like the beat of him he goes back in and then goes out through the back like i feel the stereotypical move here is he jumps out the window and then runs down the street and it's like him trying to that's the thing like i said how like they're all really clever but like he's just and it is a clever thing to do but it's this giant game of like bluffing and double bluffing and stuff and like trying to anticipate and it's like yeah this was a smart thing to do but he still fucking finds him this entire sequence is so fascinating because like the the upper hand changes so often yeah. it's probably the most sustained bit of tense filmmaking the entire movie there's so much power play going on in the stake there are moments of subversion in that this is not how your normal shootout kind of like takes place there's no thumping music going on in the background it, no. it, it, it's pretty silent like the entire time I don't think there's any score in this this section no 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 um, well they've only got 16 minutes of score to fucking play with and most films don't use every second of their score anyway so that's a huge part of it is that there's a lot of just quietness and long range uh, like wide shots that's what I'm going yeah, for yeah I mean and the movie the movie does two things like incredibly well in that it does like Shigur becomes a complete force of nature like he does not show up in this until like the last moment when he does lose the upper hand of the of the confrontation yeah you, don't, like, you it, don't even see him there's just shots coming from somewhere yeah and it, it makes it so much more terrifying yeah. but then also like the foley work has been done so well that we know what his silent shotgun sounds like so like pretty much the only sound apart from like people running and stuff like that is the like kind of like thwip of, of I, that shotgun going off it's not the shotgun in this scene this is where he's got that other gun because like, oh, is it? he wouldn't be able to sh- get him from that distance for the shot because he's like oh, still true. in the hotel shooting but it's still but it's still like kind of is that kind of like sa- silence yeah whip. that's what like, i mean like like all of his weapons have this sound to them that, that makes him you know the hooks or like a movie monster has its gimmicks and stuff and this is his that like he is a silent assassin as it were Llewellyn like getting in that guy's car and then the guy immediately gets the fucking side of his face blown off and him having to drive the car uh, and just like the amount of bullets going in and each time it comes with that kind of like thwip of like yeah. a new hole new hole new hole and Llewellyn is covered in blood ducked down in the passenger seat with the guy still dead in the driver's seat and trying to drive in from that sort of position 
positioning, crashing it, and then him sort of running over it and using a store window reflection to sort of track Anton Chigurh's movements. And then Chigurh in turn spotting the blood on the ground and diving out of the way just in time as, as Llewellyn opens fire on him. Yeah, obviously, obviously they both get pegged in yeah, this scene. they do. And they really fetishise them, like patching themselves up constantly. Oh they? god, the scene, the scene where Chigurh patches himself up is, is so good. Let's do that in just a second because this place is called, I think, Eagle Point and it's like a border town. Eagle Pass. Eagle Pass, sorry. And it's a border town and Llewellyn walks into Mexico and he like chucks the money over the fence and buys a coat off some punk for $500 and like when they, he's like give me the beer and he's like how much and he's like fucking give him the beer man it's, I don't know you could see a version of this where they try and like jump him for the money or something and he just but like, I think I think that goes against what the movie's kind of about is sure. that and like, I think this is a good point to kind of like touch on one of the themes of the movie is I mean obviously the title of this movie is No Country for Old Men and it's kind of all about a new generation coming along and kind of being terrifying to the old one and the kind of like, a big point of it is is Ed Tom Bell kind of like looking at what America has become mm-hmm. and going um, I don't understand I'm old this. and I'm frightened yeah I'm old and I'm frightened <laughs> and stuff like that but then we get multiple points in the movie that kind of like reinforce the story he's told at the end about the Indians coming to like kill a man on his doorstep and it's like this is a moment of violence that came 80 years ago or 70 years ago um, in, in much the same random way that like the violence you're witness to now like just because just because like you feel like you haven't seen this violence doesn't mean this kind of thing doesn't happen it just kind of like randomly affects different people yeah. but then there's also like a weird hope for this movie in that like even though the movie is kind of saying like th- you can argue there's a weird nostalgia for the older generations or like how it was in the past it sure but, fucking is <laughs> but there's also like every single interaction with like a younger person in this movie is kind of like shaded by confrontation not confrontation but like a lack of judgement in that like both these teenagers yes there's the one that tries to get, get the money off of him but there's that nice kid there who's just like just give him the beer well um, I took it as more as he's fucking scared of him and also a bit like I mean, fucking I mean, look I mean, at this guy's covered like, in blood I do, I do think it is fundamentally like this guy's covered in blood yeah. give him the beer and then later on in the movie when Shigur has his run in with the two teenagers where like they're both kind of like both Shigur and, and Moss are kind of like throwing money at these people but there's this kind of like under underwritten thing where it's like they maybe wouldn't need the money or they w- they don't value wealth in the same way that the kind of like the previous generations are like maybe a less selfish yeah. generation or like or like kind of like a more hopeful version of the future in that mm. this this violence is going to happen it's systemic and there's, it's always going to be in existence let's put a pin in that for <laughs> about half an hour's worth of movie time because <laughs> i yeah i've got some issues there i also like his experience walking into mexico covered in blood and he just sort of nods at the guy who's half asleep well I love, I love the guy who's just like oh he's just a drunk coming home yeah exactly and then like you know we'll see his experience coming back into America in a bit as well uh, so yeah Shigur like he acquires his medical supplies and patches himself up like we see him essentially make a timed car bomb just walking in and getting all this shit and seeing him like take a bath and like blood everywhere and he's like boiling some water using like like a little electrical cable or something to disinfect a needle and seeing him extract everything like and I think genuinely it's gonna sound like a joke but very brave of Bardem to the one where he's sitting sort of on the toilet completely naked and like because of the pose he's in as he's like got one leg over and he's like leaning down he doesn't look attractive here and like he doesn't look attractive and I mean there are weird moments where like I don't 
I don't know if it's the movie's intent, but like there's moments where both hitmen are kind of like made more effeminate. Yeah. Where like Carson Carson Wells, there is kind of like a what he's a southern is, dandy. <laughs> he's a he's a southern dandy, but like the way he licks his lips and whatnot, and it's a similar way the way that Shigeru is kind of like posing this. There is kind of like a I mean maybe maybe I'm saying effeminate in the wrong way, but it kind of feels kind of like a casualness yeah. or like a confidence in their own skin where like no one's gonna walk in and then kind of go like fuck's this guy doing like yeah, yeah. and it's like cause... you know they don't feel a need to make him this giant rippling mass of muscle who's like traditionally like a big manly man you know but he's he is still terrifying and like I don't know there's also this moment of like vulnerability almost as he's sitting there patching himself up I also like that we do see them both patching themselves up regrouping after this like incredibly tense shootout we just had Moss gets taken to a hospital by a mariachi band and everything like I, I, I just appreciate that that it's like it's not they get in the shootout they're both fucked up and then the next time we see them they're like they're feeling it but they're fine uh, that we do see them sitting there and having to do this and and it's not that Shigeru is some supernatural monster he he does have to treat himself and it does take time and I think there's I think in the book he like stays in one of the motels for like five days or something to, to regroup I do want to point out Wikipedia says that it's actually Norteño music not mariachi I'm getting uh, your regional I'm sorry. Mexican music different I'm sorry I'm sorry my cultural insensitivity is showing itself again I assume this is a thing that they do to drunks in Mexico because obviously a lot of people from like Texas and California will like sneak across the border to go get drunk because the <laughs> drinking age is 18 over there so I assume it is just a thing where like, they find Americans who are passed out and then they play loud music at them to basically <laughs> go like get the fuck up and if you're Jack Twist you can go find yourself a nice man whore down there you know, <laughs> sex worker Matt. sex worker I was being you know glib <laughs> I, I look Llewellyn wakes up in hospital and Wells is sitting by his bed with flowers which I guess goes into what you were saying and he warns him that you know Shigeru is not going to make a deal with you He, even if you give him the money he will kill you for inconveniencing him he can't be reasoned with all this stuff I just kind of find it funny that these two are like going to all these lengths to play this giant game of cat and mouse and Wells just finds him just immediately it's... yeah and I, I love that he basically like he und- like, obviously like he's like Moss has been very easy to find for this entire movie but Harrison just walks in there and says like I know where your wife is I know exactly where you are on the thing right now do you really think that no one else knows where you are i found you in about three hours yeah exactly. and moss is just like oh i was sleeping it's like that's not all why i found you that's what i mean it's like he is shown to be like he's demonstrably clever but it's just the reality of it is that like we all like leave these very obvious trails i think in our everyday life that would make it quite easy to find us if we were on the run like you see these movies and they you're like oh i could do this and then it's like yeah but for real though you couldn't people will find you you see him needling at the well and about the welding and stuff and he's like so what did you weld and he's like going through he's like oh I can weld anything and he's like going through the various things like I said I can do everything kind of he's like I'm not talking about this I didn't say this and it's like you know just that he uses his sort of sarcasm to like get at people and I think it he just enjoys playing with people like that he figures out where the money is like he's like well he doesn't have it on him probably did when he came here and then like just thinking what the most logical thing is and like going back to the sort of checkpoint between the two things and he's like right I'll go right to the middle. It's not there. The river's there. And then just going to the next lamppost because quite rightfully, yeah, you need it to pull yourself up. It's the most logical place to do it. And then seeing it. And it's like, I don't quite know why he doesn't go get it. 
immediately. But yeah. I would assume he's going back just to tell them like I found the money or whatever. Or maybe he wants to keep it there. Like he knows where it is, and if Moss gets back to him, then like Moss will get it and won't freak out. But if Moss decides to run away, he still knows where it is. Would be would be my assumption. At this point, we see Head Tom meets Carla Jean in Odessa, and he asks her to call him if Llewellyn gets in touch. And like you see him telling her about the captive bolt thing that kills cattle. And it's like, do you, do you think this is him saying that he knows that's what the murder weapon is, or do you think that's just... I think it's meant to, to me, it comes across as, like, this irony where, like, you know, he gets told, oh, we didn't find a bullet, and he's like, no, I find that really hard to believe, and then he's telling her about this process of a thing that can, like, make an entry wound, and it just sucks back in, and there's nothing, and it's like, I almost wish he had, like, a eureka moment, but maybe but the, it, the, maybe the, it the, is the supposed movie to isn't, be... The movie isn't doing that, the movie isn't... I know, but it comes across as though he's being an idiot here for not putting two and two together, but then maybe that's rich of us to say as we have the benefit of seeing the whole thing. Because the thing is, like, you you would not imagine that there would be a person running around with, like, a captive bolt pistol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that, that, that's the thing. is like, if, if it turned out that, like, someone was using this obscure thing, oh, there's a murder weapon that, like, was only used in, like, Germany in the 16th century or whatever, and, like, you wouldn't immediately go, like, well, I studied history back then, and I knew that in the Ottoman Empire. Anyway, back to the good stuff. Heathen. I'm sorry, but... So, Anton sneaks up on Wells in his hotel and insists he will get the money. He kills him without even you don't even fucking properly see it. Like Yeah, I mean this is this is the first moment where like I mean there there are spattered moments of violence after this that we are privy to. But this is the first moment where the movie kind of like hides it from us. Like we've seen what this shotgun can do. Uh, we've seen Jagger kill. We don't need to see this again. Yeah, yeah. He's sitting there and it's like, you know, I'll get the money, I know it for certain and like again they're quibbling over language kind of thing and and the phone starts ringing to interrupt the kind of quiet tension between them and then while it's ringing he just fucking pops him and picks the phone up and it's not made and he puts of... his shoes on the bed yes. which is a wonderful moment to like not get covered in blood again and, and he demands the money and he's like I'll let Carla Jean well your wife live and he's like this is the best deal I can offer you and uh yeah he's like he's like bring bring me the money you're gonna die either way in one of these two situations your wife dies as well those are your options and uh instead Llewellyn's like right you're a special project I'm gonna kill you <laughs> it's like okay is this where the movie starts to lose you because obviously yep. like I think this is the like, last cin- good cin- scene in the film like, cin- cinematic language is one of those things where like you are trained for narrative reasons and for cinema reasons to think that the movie is building up to a confrontation between these two characters it's not even that, but yeah, that is that is certainly a thing of, like, the genre tropes would be they are going to have some big gritty standoff and punch each other to death or something. And which, is, which is why I think this movie kind of, like, makes this point where, like, and obviously, like, we will we'll kind of get to, like, what happens ultimately, but the movie is kind of saying, like, life doesn't happen in kind of, like, easy narrative bites to eat. Uh-huh. And, like, these things happen, but also the whole thing is, like, that, I mean, they have the conversation later on with then Tom Bell where he's like, the world doesn't revolve around you. You are, like, Moss is a bit player in this bigger drama. Like, even, like, the fact that we don't find out who's hired anyone, we know that they're the real power players, mm-hmm. like the Mexicans and, and right. this, this drug group. <laughs> but you can say that, like, you know, life doesn't happen in easy narrative chunks, but you're not doing a documentary, this is a film. The entire 
thing is bullshit. People don't pause to let each other talk. People, like, mishear each other and cough and, and do all kinds of shit that you never see in a film. Like, you are doing a film. You have to do narrative chunks, in my opinion. <laughs> like, the I thing is, I think the movie, but I think the movie's commenting on the kind of, like, ways that violence intersects with life. I don't think the movie's making a commentary on, like, what makes an interesting narrative cohesion and conclusion. The movie's kind of more talking about the ways, uh-huh. like, violence in society I know, and, I know. and kind of like an, an airing on nostalgia and and hope and, and all these kind of... And I don't like any of that stuff that is coming <laughs> up, by the way. So we see Llewellyn go back into America and, like, Border Patrol are giving him a hard time and then the second he drops the stuff about Vietnam, he gets to come in and it's like... Which I, I really like that. Yeah, this whole thing, so Southern, so, like, idolizing vets. I, I, I choose who comes into the country and he's, like, acting all standoffish and then the moment he's a vet, he's just like, yeah, obviously you come in. Oh, obviously you can come in. Like, I'll put down my massive cock I'm swinging around about getting to decide who comes into the greatest country on Earth. Yeah, but also, like, there's the subtle hint that, like, he didn't serve in Nam, oh, yeah, most yeah, likely. Yeah. That's totally the thing of, like, you know, the, the like, idolising the vets but no service yourself type thing. And, like, you know, you see these people that are, like, going on about how, like, the greatest generation and, like, the people before them, and it's like, but you didn't do any of this shit. Or, like, when you see, like, war heroes who are in favour of the things that they think they're not, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, like, normally the shorthand would be, like, if that guy had served in Nam as well, he would have listed where he served in what, what chunk of it, but, like, he obviously doesn't, and so it's like, well, the... And you also see Shigur go and murder Stephen Root. You know, I don't know how far this office high-rise is supposed to be from where the rest is taking place, but based on how quickly Wells got to him, I guess it's not that far. It's all in Texas. It's all, like, a couple hours drive away. I get the feeling yeah. they might be in Austin. Yeah, it's a tiny um, little state that isn't five times the size of our whole country. I mean, sure, but, like, <laughs> I mean, like, but the thing is, in America, very much that kind of, like, thing where, like, you just drive everywhere. Yeah, they're in, um, yeah, they're in Odessa, they're in El Paso, they're, you know, they're in all these. So, Carla Jean tells Ed Tom where Llewellyn is planning to meet her, and then when he shows up, there are men fleeing the scene, and Llewellyn is just fucking dead on his doorstop and his motel and there's no sign of the money. So they do this, you know, he gets talking to a stranger who is like offering to bang him and he turns her down and uh, we get this sort of ambiguous cut to black between that and all this chaos going down. On some level are they saying, did he then go on to accept the invitation and go inside or is it just... I mean, I think I think that is very much because like, I mean, she's in the pool and like face down when they yes. come past well, so she's obviously like, obviously he's gone in to see her and she's been killed in the um yeah, yeah. in the crossfire. She kind of like makes the comment of being like oh, you know, is that what you're looking for then? Is that what you're looking for your wife? And and, and kind of like, oh, you know what's coming, and kind of like this kind of like metatextual thing of like Moss oh, knows yeah. what's Moss knows what's coming, and she makes a choice that it's beer, beer's coming. It's not not yeah, your yeah. inevitable death. Because... And they all fucking talk about what's coming for them all all the time, don't they? Um, yes. Look, on some level, it kind of sucks that Moss dies off screen, but that's not what I'm at. Like, I'm not gonna pin my entire like dissatisfaction with the end. Sure, I mean, but it's that. very much that is very much a criticism of this movie is that this movie trains you to see Moss as the, the protagonist. Um, and then they're and like, then, surprise it was Ed Tom all along. Yeah, surprise it was Ed Tom the entire time. And I can understand why people are annoyed by that. I think it yeah. works in the movie's favour. Yeah. I love that they set up all the mechanics of like how other people find out the Mexicans are following 
Collagen, and then and then Collagen's mum is just like ranting and raving in a great little kind of small role from Beth Grant, where Beth Grant's just like, oh, they're taking me to El Paso. I don't even know why we're going there. Don't see a lot of Mexicans in suits. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She just gives it away, and then there's kind of like the subtle thing where like maybe they're tracking phone calls, which is how other sides kind of like find out what's happening and with Collagen and on the flip side, I do like that Ed Tom just shows up to this like rampant chaos and you just have to like fill in the blanks for yourself and like, is, we, we've got to the point now where the violence is kind of stopped like we had the moment where Woody Harrelson gets killed off screen the Stephen Root death is is graphic but not as graphic as some of the other deaths that we've had in the movie so far and then we cut to the the, the end of the violence in the scene and every, everything's kind of passed we've missed it but we still get to have Ed Tom walking up to yet another mass grave and like he makes no attempt to give chase like he just goes in to check out all of the yeah. I do I do wonder is this is this the mess because obviously like there's that line earlier in the movie where he goes like oh this whole thing's a mess and then Tom kind of turns around and says like well if it's not it'll do until the mess gets here <laughs> yeah, which yeah, is yeah. one of my favourite lines in this movie yeah like the turns of phrase that they give them all like uh, especially Ed Tom like no that's frustrating or he says like, when he's talking about the milk or, or something and like I don't, I don't know just a lot of the stuff up uh, uh, earlier on is, is very yeah. I mean I think I mean a hell of a lot of that's obviously Comet McCarthy but then yeah. we also have to kind of give credit to the Coens because obviously they have cut this down to the bone in terms of like what dialogue stays. So he gets talking to I guess the local the sheriff for this town and you just get these two old men lamenting about kids with fucking green hair who don't say sir and ma'am and just fucking yawn quite frankly. But I don't think the movie actually agrees at that point. I think the movie is kind of maybe trying to have its cake and eat it at one time where it's both nostalgic and hopeful for the future. I don't know. I think the movie's saying modern times are fucked man I don't like none of this Remember no I don't because I, I think I think because I, I think the movie makes a point to go like yeah but the past was fucked up too like you can't yeah well that's be... my counterpoint when people say that sort of shit but, yeah, but the like, movie, I don't the movie, think the movie is saying that but the movie does because he literally goes to see his uncle or the old is it his the uncle. old his uncle his, yeah. he goes to see his uncle and his uncle like makes as I said that makes that point of telling a story that happened 70 years beforehand of this random swathe of violence and it's like yeah but like you get this whole thing where he's like almost judging him for his retirement and, and like he goes to him and he's like yeah I, I feel overmatched you know your wife tells me you're planning to retire and he's like yeah like I don't, I don't know it just I feel like this old man is like fucking pull your bootstraps up and then go get this man you but I think that's another example of like the the kind of like past having a harsher view on it than, than the current I mean, I mean and it's interesting in that Ed Tom is the only character that has a change of heart over the course of the movie where... Does he? <laughs> yeah, in terms of, like, everyone else is kind of, like, motivated by the same thing that they're motivated are at the start, whereas Ed Tom kind of, he's a good cop or good sheriff, good at his job. By the end of the movie, he's been worn down so much. And obviously there's hints that he's going to be worn down at the start. But I think when it starts, he is kind of, like, he is trying to do good police work and by the end of it he's just like and this case field killed my desire to to do this anymore but i mean if there were already the plans to retire before this case is wrapped up like i kind of dispute that. I, d- I i don't think there were um, but she his wife told this old man and it's not like they've got the fucking internet to like i don't know like no but this is but this is after his um after he's been to see this well after he failed to save luenna yeah and like maybe some time has passed but like i don't know yeah and like the the other guy he was talking to like yammers about how someone returned to the scene of the crime and like who has the bravery to do that and then you see after he talks to his uncle he does go to the motel where Llewellyn was killed. I think it's when Llewellyn was killed. Yeah he goes he goes there he sees the locks being like blown out. Yeah yeah and there's two um, there's two doors 
and you know he chooses one and goes in and just as he's about to go in we see Shigur sitting behind the door like looking at the door or whatever and well it's... I mean it, it, you can kind of say is it a dream that he's kind of like he's seen the lot go and is he imagining that like this could be his death or are we saying that like Shigur jumps out the window well no he's in the room next to him isn't he no no he's in the same room no he's not if you look at the door like the door in where Shigur is looking is like you know how you get like hotel rooms where like next to each other they like mirror each other's layouts so the door is on the right on this one and on the left on this one it's like that but, he, but, he, but it's a 50 through. 50 choice like the to- like the whole coin toss thing no because there's only one block that's been blown out and he's looking through the lock that's kind of like got the perfect circle with the sun he's behind where the door frame would kind of close into him <sighs> I don't like this kind of thing either. This, like, going out of your way to not make coherent sense just to be, like... I think the Coens are very self-indulgent, quite frankly. It's very, like, look what great filmmakers we are. And sometimes you are, but sometimes I think you're actually not. And I think part of good filmmaking is being able to tell what the fuck's going on. And, you know, it seems like we're about to get... Like, what I thought was going to happen was he was going to put his hand on the door and then be like, no, and just walk away. And it's like, yeah, if you had gone in there, you would have died. But instead, he does go in and we get this sort of cut away to either he was there earlier or he imagines he's there or he might be in the room next door if not. I mean I think I think he is 100% he was there earlier because like he finds the coin on the floor which we knew should go use to kind of like open the vent and he sees the vents kind of been opened and like there's there's signs that Shigur had been there and the question is kind of like whether or not this is Ed Tom kind of like imagining that he's going into his death or whether or not it is Shigur was it was actually in there in the movie and managed to get out before Ed Tom comes in because in my interpretation of it when Ed Tom opens the door and the door slams into the wall it's a sign that like that's your first sign that like Shigo's not in here because we've seen him be on the left side of the door Okay, I swear the doors are different. Anyway, uh, so Carla Jean buries her mother, returns home. I, I guess it's her mother's home. And Shigeru is just waiting for her in the house. And he offers her the same coin toss from before. She refuses. And then we just see him leave the house checking his shoes. And it's like, you know, you could easily be like, well, we don't know what happened, but we know what fucking happened. <laughs> well, I think it's because he, 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 the, the fact he checks his shoes on the door says that the blood was involved at some point. I think, it's, again, it's one of those narrative shorthands the movie does to kind of like prove that this happened. And, like, you know, yeah. when she's talking about how she's got no money and, like, you know, she's got all these bills that she's got to pay and he's just like, yeah, don't worry about them. <laughs> I was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I think Helen McDonald is great in this scene. Yeah. It's a very short scene, but, like, she is really good. And, like, in the book, uh, she, like, pleads for her life and in this it's very, like, no, I'm not going to, like... Because he makes the point earlier on, I can't call it for you, it wouldn't be fair. And, like, she's like, no, I'm not fucking... Like, kill me if you're going to kill me, but I'm not fucking playing your coin toss bullshit. Yeah, like, this, this is... This is you're the one deciding this not the coin stop yeah. making it be like the coins are anything to do with this if you Indeed. wanted to kill me you would kill me and, and then, like he makes the point of like telling her that Llewellyn had a chance to save her and he chose not to and it's like that's that's and she says it's not the way you put it or whatever yeah um, like he has this view of the world as I love you like he has his like moral code or the way he interprets things. everything's a binary choice there's no gray you do this or you don't yeah, yeah yeah as he is driving away he is just he's not rear-ended he's like side what do you call that when you get just fucking t-boned t-boned he gets t-boned and he limps away with a broken just just want to say the movie makes a point that he doesn't disobey any traffic the light is definitely green yeah there are like theories that like the person driving was somebody and like knows it's him or whatever it's like but who would it be i think it's just meant to be like people drive like idiots all the time the whole the whole thing of the movie is like shigur rules his life by like chance and fate and this is just one of those moments of like and like this kind of like becomes one of those like thematic moments 
moments where this horrific act of violence happened someone died and Shigur just walks away because he works, walks away from like all the chaos that he is involved in or causes or anything like that yeah. like, he is not the cause of the traffic accident traffic collision as Hot Fuzz teaches us <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, he, and he's like calm about it because I think he just views it as like well this is just a thing that's happened he's paying attention to these children in, in the rearview mirror as he's like driving away which could imply that he's being distracted but they come over to like check that he's alright and he's like take this money give me your shirt I'm gonna make a sling yeah. take more money and don't tell the police I was here because like, he just he will disappear into the night he's like you can just have my shirt mister and it's yeah, and like his arm, his like bone is sticking out of his arm. Yeah. And like... um, but I, again, I think this this moment of like the youth kind of being like, I don't need money for the shirt is very much that kind of like the the old timers are like they yes they are being aged out, but not necessarily for something that's bad. It's just something that's different. I agree with with that as a sentiment, but whether I don't, or not you think the movies, are I just that. I'm not taking that from the movie. But I, I if that if that's what they were going for, hey, I agree with you. I just I didn't get that, and our movie fucking ends with Ed Tom just what do I do with my day now I'm retired and just I mean he, so he's, got, he's got the two he's got the two dreams yes he, t- he um, tells his wife about his two dreams and like the first dream which he kind of like rubs away which is like my dad gave me some money and I lost it which feels like a commentary on like the money being the crux point of the movie and also he, like he talks about he, at the beginning how he and his father were sheriffs at the same time and how that meant a lot to him and it's like could you maybe be saying that like you are walking away from being this and like he did it till the end and he, well, like is it implied that he died in the line of duty or something because he's like I'm 20 years older than he ever was and it's like I mean he definitely died young whether or not he died in the line of duty I'm yeah. not uh, the movie kind of never says but yeah like it's it was too interesting where like the, the money one kind of like shorter well, and he doesn't kind of remember like, it very well he doesn't remember it very well but it could be about Llewellyn kind of like he's lost something that matters and yeah. kind of that kind of thing the second one I think is there is a debate in circles about whether or not this movie is nihilistic and obviously I think this movie is a lot more hopeful than an awful lot of people do I take this story as my dad's dead and he's waiting for me to join him so. no because I take this to be he set the light somewhere to kind of like hope that I can make it and I think I take that to mean we can't disavow the kind of past because they're trying to make the future better for all of us and like life is dark and depressing but there are people out there that are working as a force for good and it kind of like comes in part and parcel with that kind of like the reading of the scene where he goes to see his uncle that we've discussed about like how these acts of violence that we find intersecting our lives will continue to happen but as long as there are people out there that are willing to light the fire of hope elsewhere that can make it worthwhile and the movie kind of like pivots from like here is one of those acts of violence and how it intersects with this man's life and obviously the acts of violence in this movie are horrific but as it goes on they start to lessen and obviously the movie kind of finishes with this act of violence but I do think it kind of ends on a hopeful note which is like right but this this particular bit is done this yeah. cycle of violence has ended and and we will move on and there will be other acts of violence but they won't necessarily be connected to this yeah. cycle I find this conversation and the one with his uncle it's all just very vague and metaphorical and wistful and like to just end on this sort of abstract story that is you know you can map it to the events of the movie a bit and then just to just go to credits I, I just I, I, I've I never love, liked that kind of ending ever I love the final line of this movie of like and then I woke up and again like you can read so much into that like is it like him waking up to the idea that there isn't hope or is it him waking up to like try and make the world a better place 
Well, what's he going to do? He's a fucking retired man <laughs> in Texas who's like 9,000 years old. Like, what's the hope there? Like, yeah. he's going to find something to do with his days? Like, I think my big problem is that, like, nobody changes, in my opinion, because Ed Tom... I, I, do, think, I do think Ed Tom does, but no, I do 100% agree that Sugar, Moss, Wells, Collagene all stay exactly the same, pretty much, as the movie finds them. Yeah, we never really know what was happening with the money, and we don't have to, but I'm just saying, like, no one, I just, they, I they just don't recover the money, she, they don't recover the men they don't catch anyone Shigur just wanders off and presumably keeps doing this until one day he dies Llewellyn well, dies off screen Ed Tom just so... retires and is wistful Shigur is so thoroughly coded as like I mean I've seen people call him like death the Grim Reaper and, the Grim Reaper. Yeah, and, and yeah, I think yeah. that's probably kind of like a bit too much but that's I do think he is kind of he is so much of this a force of nature he and just I think wanders looks... through your town and brings bad times with him man I mean it's exactly the same way I mean you could argue it's very similar to Fargo season one where if I I do think that Billy Bob Thornton's playing Noah Hawley's version of Shakur. And like, yeah, they are very similar, of course. Um, they are very similar. In fact, you could probably make an argument that they are the same person. Um, they both kill Stephen Root. <laughs> But yeah, like, I mean, and the thing is, like, but the, the, the death of, spoilers for Fargo season one, of all things, when um, Billy Bob dies at the end of season one, oh. like, he has that moment where, like, he, he comes back to life, like, twice before yeah. he dies. And again, he's a force of nature, and they're kind of making a point, and the well, Coen brothers have done spirituality in their movies before, yeah. and whilst I don't think he is the devil, I do think he works better as a kind of, like, force for evil, and it's one of those things with Fargo season one where I actually kind of would prefer it if Billy Bob kind of got to go away, but then you completely rub Colin, Colin Hanks of like his character arc if yeah. he doesn't get to do something at the very end there. And also when he dies, like his acting there when he just looks like an actual fucking animal dying there in the chair, it's like, oof. Right, so the title, No Country for Old Men and like, you know, Ed Tom's big monologue at the beginning and the ongoing thing about, oh, it's rough out there now. He shows up to crime scenes after they've already happened. Like, he doesn't really, and like, there's no real get up and go about it. He's just rocking up to these crime scenes and we're like, yeah, a lot of death happened here. The thing is, like, I don't think it's overly extreme. I mean, we see some extreme shit, but he never sees any of this. He finds a bunch of bodies, and it's like, sorry, you're in Gunland, USA, and this is like the worst shit you've ever seen—just a pile of bodies and cars and a dog. Like, I don't think it's actually that. It makes him come across as like he's just too small town for. I, it, is like, it that is it, but, big of a fucking thing? I assume but, like, this thing thing... He's, he's kind of making a point where like, oh, people in my previous generations didn't use guns and it's like I mean he's been doing this for 40 years like maybe this is the most violent thing he's ever seen or maybe he's been able to compartmentalise the but stuff isn't the this hand. just a Tuesday in America like <laughs> I don't know it's just like if they go in for like he's a little bit too small town cop to be dealing with like some giant like obvious I mean it's not necessarily the mob but like some sort of cartel like big drug operation like you know he's maybe not equipped to deal with that it's like okay also that whole thing about like not willing to put his chips in against something he doesn't understand it's like, but he never meets Shigur. Shigur just being a pawn in a, like, larger game of, like, drugs and money. But I don't think Shigur is a pawn. Shigur's like, you're playing chess, and then someone comes in with, like, the Monopoly car. This is the piece we need. And then the Monopoly car proceeds to go, like, I make my own rules, and then starts taking your own pieces off you instead. Like, I just fundamentally think...
think this would have worked better if he was just a serial killer. And it's like Ed Tom versus serial killer who he just cannot fathom the like the mentality of. And instead it's just like, oh man, this crime thing, there's a lot of it. We have that movie, we have that movie and that TV show of like the cop trying to track down the serial killer and I just find this performance and this character so much more interesting if they are vaguely coded as being otherworldly. But then like why is he if he doesn't if he doesn't care for money and he doesn't care for this and that, why is he even for hire? Because he has his like moral code and he just likes applying it. Like, it's not much of a moral code if he's like agreeing. Oh, I, mean, I, I think I think he is completely amoral, but like he has a code and that code is based on fate and chance and whether or not you have a car he wants to use. Like ah. he just kills chicken man. He's just like, can you remove the chickens from the back of the car? Yeah, just I think pretty much from when Woody Harrelson dies until the end, I'm just like I am no longer on board with this movie but the first two thirds are so good it's like an hour and a half it is like the the, the ship does come in that final half hour I think for you no definitely it's all in that like and it strikes me as very Cohen-y like this is a very Cohen Brothers ending to me and where they lose me like uh, they obviously have their powers and they are among the best at what they do when it comes to these I I don't don't, don't want to call it like small town America and like the big landscapey stuff but you know all the all the, the filmmaking of, of the them just like shooting Texas is fucking amazing and they do such good stuff with Shigur as this sort of like weird presence and the power of the three of them never sharing a frame together pretty much and, and all of that like briefly when like Shigur jumps out of the way of the gun blast or whatever but other than that they like almost are never on screen at the same time like all of that is just so so good I just I, I uh, it is not for me this kind of wistful metaphorical make up your own ending make up your own meaning kind of filmmaking uh, I just have never liked it and you know it's I still recognize how good the rest of it is like I didn't try and fight this off the list by any means like it's I knew it was coming <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, much yeah. as other people know Shigar and death are coming uh, yeah but I mean if, if I'm if I make it like this is maybe probably my favorite movie that we've done so far like there's there's a lot of stuff that I love on this list like I love Eternal Sunshine and Brokeback and Children of Men and Zodiac and so many of these movies but like this one yeah like this one speaks to me like and I think I think it is because I, I don't know like just aesthetically and and uh, on, a, on a thematic level it just very much appeals to me it's why I do hold it above There Will Be Blood even though I think that's also a total masterpiece and there are people out there who are still pissed that There Will Be Blood lost Best Picture to No Country for Old Men we'll see how um, I feel about that yeah we'll see how we feel about it I do think <laughs> the ending is more clear cut than this one like no one says like and then I woke up up at the very end there will be blood um, there it is arguable that the final scene of there will be blood is the best scene in the movie I know I know I know all of that shit like that's inescapable but is this Tommy Lee Jones's last big performance like he they... was in Astra this year okay I mean he's not big he shows up in like kind of like act three um, yeah. but he's, he's perfectly good in that but you know like he's a huge name in the industry and I feel for an entire generation he's from men in black you know <laughs> like, yeah and like he, you know he was in J- he was in Jason Bourne okay oh he's in Captain America I know, but that's like, you know, they're tossing him like a cameo where he's clearly not flexing his muscles, as it were. Whereas this is like an honest-to-goodness, like, Tommy Lee Jones, we're going to hire you to act, you know, not just, like, be a person in a in a role, you know? Like, we want you to, like, actually try and <laughs> everything. Yeah, I just feel it's been a long time since he got to do and like this may be his last like big big one but he doesn't seem the most pleasant man in the world but like I think it, he's, it, he's just a gr- he's a grumpy 73 year old man yeah and I feel he has been since he before he was 73 I mean yeah I mean that's literally <laughs> who played in Men in Black 
Yeah, true. But it's nice to see him, like, you know, going for it here. And that opening monologue is, like, so fucking good. And Bardem, like, this is an all-time performance. And Josh Brolin, like, I don't know what his... His filmography in my head is so, like, dissipated because, obviously, he was, like, a child star, almost, from, like, Goonies and stuff. And then he, like, he found fame quite late, almost. He follows this up, like, quite strong. Because, obviously, he's got a couple of movies, like, he does Grindhouse this year as well and In the Valley of Eli. He he works a lot with Tommy Lee Jones, actually, because he's not in the value of Ella. <laughs> they literally hired him to impersonate him. For he literally Black hired him to impersonate him. He's in really Black good 3. at that. I will say that. For whatever you want to um, say about Men in Black 3, like, Brolin doing Tommy Lee Jones is very good. Yeah. And then he kind of does, he has W, he has Milk. They give him Jonah Hex for some reason. <laughs> he's got a, a cameo in True Grit. He remakes Old Boy. <laughs> Um, and now he's Thanos on Cable. And now he's Thanos on Cable. And I feel like that's kind of like, he's still hired by Joel and Ethan Cohen to do like In-House Caesar. He's he's in Inherent Vice as well. So working with Paul Thomas Anderson. But what I was getting at was like, he's very good in this. And like, yeah, I feel like he, he he kind of like goes away for a little bit and then he kind of like circles back around. Yeah. And now I, he's kind of like able to split his time between doing smaller indie projects, but also being the, the emotional crux of... Yeah. Two of the biggest movies of all time. Yeah. All right. Well, we've had it out. We feel how we feel. Obviously, this movie probably belongs on the list, no matter how I feel about it. Moving number 25 on this list. Yeah? What about it? I don't think it's as good as this movie, and that's about as far as I'll go tonight. All right. Well, we have some other movies coming up next week, in fact, that I feel a lot of people aren't going to think are anywhere near as good as this movie or the one coming after. Uh, we're doing Juno next week. It could have very easily been two completely different movies, but we have our one direct to rule but we'll get into that next week in the meantime go to into the into the real world.com go to soundcloud.com slash mike and matt check everything out do what you want and give us some feedback and all that at will be movies not there will be still would have been a better handle i think but no. all right <laughs> if you really want could couldn't i anyway i'm not gonna do that so ben obviously a lot of things in this movie are kind of for your own interpretation that it's not that clear cut but are you able to interpret and find whether there will be movies i will have a dream <laughs> and find out whether or not there will be movies and i did it for